Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. Virginia Postrel is an author, columnist, and speaker. She's conversant in technology, but her work is cross-disciplinary, looking at economics, history, and culture, among other things. I first started reading her work way back in the early 2000s. She has a new book coming out, actually, it came out today, called Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Made the World, which is about the history and future of fabric. The topic of textiles is relevant to us because fabric is everywhere. But actually, radical innovation in textiles is nothing new, as you'll learn in today's interview. We discussed so many topics that I hesitate to list them, but they include how economic development historically has had dependency on the production of thread, how weaving has driven some of the progress in mathematics and computation, how and why knitted fabric has risen to prominence, and what the future holds for the intersection of textiles and advanced technology. So here we go. Virginia Postrel. I see that you left your weaving piece behind you. It's like podcast palooza at my house. And some of them have video and some of them have not. And so I just decided, you know, I'm not going to worry about whether the specific podcast has got video or not. I'm just going to act like they all do because it's easier. <laughs> so wait, I'm curious, how many podcasts have you done recently? It's just been three, but it's in the space of two days. So. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming on. I'm excited to talk to you because I've been following you for decades. I actually read Future and Its Enemies back when it was published, and that had a huge impact on the way that I thought about technological change. I've been following you since then, and you've published a couple of other books. You did Substance of Style and Power of Glamour, and you're releasing now Fabric of Civilization. And so when I heard you were writing a new book, I was like, oh, this is great. I have a podcast, but I'm not sure if fabric is really part of what we do. Then when I looked into what you wrote about is totally relevant because the history of fabric is the history of innovation and that feedback loop between culture and technology was really prominent. So for those listeners that are less familiar with your background, could you just give us a rundown of where you've been so far and what your interest area is? Yes. It's a hard question to ask about the interest area. The way I usually describe it is my primary interest is in the intersection of culture, commerce, and technology. But I'm generally interested in innovation, ingenuity, sources of economic value, sources of intangible value, all of those kinds of things. And I currently am a columnist with Bloomberg Opinion, I've been a columnist a bunch of different places, the New York Times. I wrote an economics column for six years. I've worked for The Atlantic for a while. In the 90s, from 89 to 2000, I was the editor of Reason Magazine. So that was more sort of my political hat. But even there, I was doing a lot of tech, science, thinking about markets, how they work, uh, that sort of stuff. So yeah, the fabric of civilization, I think you put your finger on it, which is that it is about the story of innovation. The subject of textiles gave me an opportunity to do a deep historical dive into how innovation happens, different sources, where we came from, learning to appreciate the things that surround us. And it's also interesting that fabric is a window into what it means to be human. I didn't think about it before, but you write that it's part of a universal experience of being a human, is being around textiles. And this goes back even before recorded history. Absolutely. In fact, between the time that I filed the manuscript and the time that I had to do a revised version, there was a paper published that found that 
there was string, real string, clearly fabricated and then plied with two strands twisted together. That was made by Neanderthals. That's not textiles, but that's the first step towards textiles. And it is itself a transformational technology. Once you have string, there are so many things that you can do that you couldn't do before. And that's the kind of tool making that makes human beings who they are. Uh, But yes, from the moment we're born, we're surrounded by textiles. What's the first thing people do with the baby is wrap it in some kind of cloth. Mm. Textiles, also the word itself comes from the Indo-European root text, which meant to weave. And that's the same word that we get technology from. So the two are interlaced from the very beginning. Interlaced, no pun intended. And you can barely talk without using textile metaphors. And not just in English, but in other languages as well. Yeah. So you did this with the structure of the book, actually. You used textiles as a metaphor for laying out the structure. Can you explain how that worked? Yes. So there's a warp to the book and a weft to the book. That is parallel threads and then perpendicular threads woven between Mm -hmm. them. So each chapter is a stage in the textile journey from fiber to finished cloth. So we have fiber, thread, cloth, dye, and then that's not the end of this process. Then that's just, you have it, now you have to do something with it. So then we have traders, merchants, and consumers. And then there's a final chapter that's called innovators. And really, they're innovators throughout the book. But this was a way for me to bring things up to the present day and look at some of the scientific work that's being done on transforming textiles in various ways. Yeah. And so that's the warp threads. And then cross-cutting that, each chapter has a theme. So for example, the fiber chapter is about humans changing nature and the idea that there really is no such thing as a natural fiber and the story of agriculture as it relates to textiles, among other things. The one on dyes is a history of chemistry, and it's also about how far can you get with purely trial and error with no good scientific theory, and then how does having an actual scientific theory change what you can do? Mm -hmm. Also, another inspiration that I heard you mention was that abundance leads to amnesia and that you were trying to revisit this thing that we've all forgotten You also said, with apologies to Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently familiar technology is indistinguishable from nature. And that is so true. I mean, as soon as a technology reaches some threshold of being commonplace and being everywhere, we forget it's there. We assume that we deserve it almost. We're entitled to that technology. Nobody has to, you know, work to make it anymore. It's just part of the ether. It's around us. And we forget what it took to develop the ideas behind it. And of course, people are still, whether you're talking about textiles, or you're talking about computer chips, or you're talking about post-it notes or dishwashers, whatever it is that's around us, people are still working on the technological cutting edge of that thing. It's just some some cutting edges are more incremental than others. Right. Uh, but yes, I, I want to do two things. One is that I want to imbue people with an appreciation of this artifact that we have 
it's a wonderful thing that we can take them for granted throughout most of human history until very recently. And in fact, I would argue even within my lifetime, I was born in 1960, you couldn't really take textiles for granted. They were still sufficiently expensive or we were sufficiently poor or whatever that you had to think about their costs. And now they're just super abundant. So we've got all this abundance And that's great. And that's progress. And it's not like everybody needs to know how to make textiles. But when you understand the history and you understand the amount of ingenuity and intelligence that goes into them, you appreciate them more. And it gives the world a kind of magical or enchanted feel to appreciate what human beings have wrought. And then the other thing is sometimes knowing about how things are made that inspires you in your own life and whatever problems you're dealing with in terms of innovation or looking for new solutions. Yeah. And string, you mentioned string already. So let's start at the beginning. So there's a chapter on fiber and string, and it's this general purpose technology that dramatically increases humans' ability to control the world around them. And then you go from there to fibers from cotton plants and how cotton is one of the first examples of early technology. So yes, first of all, cotton bowls don't naturally grow north of the frost line because cotton in its natural state blooms when the days get short. So it's a tropical plant. And if you take it north of where there are frosts, what happens is the flowers come, then the frost comes, and before the bowls with the fiber on them can come, they're killed. And so the first trick was finding varieties that had evolved more or less naturally that could survive in that climate. Mm -hmm. And most of the places in the world where cotton is grown in large amounts today are above the frost line. And you mentioned, fast forwarding to today, that now we have these protein-based polymers that are pushing the boundaries of what's possible with fibers. We actually can make fibers to order with very specific and controlled requirements like Resilience to UV or strength? Yes. So there are companies. The one that I'm most familiar with is Bolt Threads, which it's a Silicon Valley company, but there are several around the world that are bringing bioengineering to making fibers. And the idea is we're used to polymers as a source of fibers, but proteins are also polymers. Every protein, every biological cell is a polymer. Mm. So they're taking the idea that now we can design polymers that will have certain characteristics, but that are protein polymers. And the way they do it at Bolt is they bioengineer yeast to secrete these polymers. It's promising because when they understand the characteristics, how a gene encodes a certain quality and how they can manipulate that to get fiber. Now, this is not yet commercialized. And in fact, I was really excited about this and I've been following them for at least five years. It turned out that a bigger market was for a bioengineered substitute leather that's made essentially from cells that make up mushrooms. So they've put the fibers on hold. But I think down the road, we will see that just as we saw new hydrocarbon-based polymers exploding in the mid-20th century. I think down the road, we're going to see something happen with protein fibers. Mm -hmm. And traditional protein fibers like wool and silk have nice qualities of being easily dyed and 
they're somewhat easier to work with in some ways than cellulose fibers like cotton and linen. So that's fiber. And then zooming out thread. So in order to make thread, you need to take fibers and twist them together and make them so completely intertwined that there's enough friction that you've created something with the strength to sew. That's what thread. I actually didn't right. know that fibers thread. I didn't even know any of this. It's interesting. You're <laughs> yeah. not alone. I mean, one of the things that I discovered is not that I knew so much about textiles going in, but it turns out I knew a lot more than the typical person <laughs> <laughs> because I did know things like fiber has to be turned into thread and the, the fibers on a cotton plant, or you could picture a cotton ball that you might buy at the drugstore. They're very short. They're very short. The longest, most expensive cotton fibers are maybe two and a half inches long. And that's very unusual. So how do you turn that into something you can make cloth in? So essentially you stretch it out and twist it and it creates these sort of helical structures hmm. and they wind on themselves. And as you say, friction holds it together and you can make it longer and longer. And throughout most human history, this was essentially done by women spending every waking hour <laughs> practically spinning, often with what is a very simple technology, which is called a drop spindle. And it's basically a stick at pokes through a weight, could be made of clay, could be made of stone with a hole in it, something like that, but something that sticks on the stick and increases the angular momentum. And you can get this thing spinning and stretching out your fiber and twisting it. It's very hard to learn in my experience, but people get really good at it to where if you watch somebody doing it, it looks like the, the string is just coming out of the air. Wow. It looks completely effortless. So you mentioned sewing with thread or, or string or yarn, and that is something we do with it, but we also make cloth with it. Right. You essentially take this one-dimensional line, if you will, and you turn it into a two-dimensional plane. And the oldest, or not the oldest, but the oldest one that is now common is weaving. Mm -hmm. And you have horizontal threads and vertical threads or threads going one way and threads going perpendicular to them and they're interlaced and it's all held together with friction right. <laughs> or you can knit which is a single thread that's looped on itself to create a plane again and knitting is a much newer way of making cloth it only dates to about the 12th century Nowadays, knitting is taking over the world. Wow. Yeah, and we'll get into that, but I don't want to leave thread yet because it's really fascinating. First of all, you mentioned it's possibly the first use of a wheel, even before transportation. Yes, that spindle, that principle of rotation goes back to prehistory. Yeah, another thing about thread is that because it's so useful, it's always in demand, and then it became this universal life skill. Yes, and unlike, say, weaving, mm -hmm. it was very gendered, as we say nowadays. So weaving, depending on the culture, sometimes women did it, sometimes men did it, sometimes both did it, sometimes women worked on one type of loom, men worked on another. It's not a male or female thing, it just depends on the culture, but spinning for reasons that nobody really knows, it's always been something that women did mm. and was, as you say, a universal life skill. Everybody learned to spin because to make anything, you need ridiculous amounts of thread. Yeah. I made a video. I have this YouTube channel where I'm making videos about textile history. And I made a video recently about bandanas. I was inspired by the people wearing them because of COVID. And so one thing I did was I 
calculated how much thread there is in a bandana. How much thread does it take to weave a 22-inch square bandana, which is like nothing. Right. And it's a mile and a half. And in the pre-industrial world, that would have taken the world's fastest spinners about 24 hours to spin that much thread. And that doesn't include cleaning the cotton, ginning the cotton, getting it all ready to spin. And it doesn't include weaving the fabric or dyeing the fabric, any of of that stuff. That's just to make the thread to weave a 22-inch square bandana. It gives you some idea of why the industrial revolution started with thread. Yeah, and and you have a chart in the book that shows other objects and how much thread would be needed. One of them that caught my eye was sails, because obviously in order to explore the world to trade, you need sails, and sails are enormous. And so, again, the lack of abundance of thread actually affects your ability to trade and learn about the world and leave your community. I just thought that was an interesting connection. Right. And when you see this, it's amazing that people did do that. Right. <laughs> because it, I mean, one of the things that I learned in doing the research is that it took longer to make a Viking sail from start to finish than it took to make a Viking ship from start to finish. Wow. It just takes a staggering amount of work. And the idea that there were, in fact, people who sailed all over the place is really impressive because making the cloth for those sails took a lot of time. And then the abundance of yarn that came along with better technology, finally this this lid is lifted on the amount of thread that you can make. And you write about the abundance of yarn as being a leading indicator for the great enrichment, which is this term for this massive increase in wealth. Yes. So I take this term, the great enrichment, from the economic historian Deirdre McCluskey. And she uses it to describe a 3,000 percent increase in the global standard of living that starts about 1800. So from 1800 to today, from the poorest people to the richest people, everybody got lifted a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's no equivalent in human history before that. And it starts with making thread abundant. And when you think about all the things that are made with textiles, and especially that were made back then with textiles, you can see how it's this very high leverage technology because it's not just that everybody can get more and better clothes, more and better bed sheets, more and better bandages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also sales. It's also sacks, which were very important for transporting goods. All of these kinds of utilitarian objects, some of which we've now replaced with, say, plastics. But if you go back to that 18th century context, all these textiles suddenly plummeting in price becomes an enabler of all kinds of other things. And then making the thread more abundant then made it easier to weave. And that created a lot of jobs for weavers and also increased the pay of weavers. And then by the early 19th century, we have the power looms come along and then you have the famous Luddite resistance to technology. Mm -hmm. But those weavers actually owed the jobs they were afraid of losing to an earlier disruptive technology, which was this production of thread. Yeah. And so that's a great segue to cloth. So cloth is basically a matrix of threads going warp and weft. 
And you liken that to binary code. You have this line warp weft over under up down on off one zero. It seems like a very visceral connection between code and cloth. And there's even some historical connection. Could you tell us a little bit about how cloth is a mathematical object? So I, I tell the story of having this dinner with a bunch of skilled hobbyists, hand weavers and artists, some of whom I knew had mathematical background. And so I said, so what is the relationship between weaving and math? And two of them immediately said, it's all math, hmm. <laughs> but actually cloth making because knitting has its own mathematics. But yes, weaving, it has this over under quality, which leads to various binary applications and involves the early history of computers in various ways. It also has other kinds of mathematical elements. So for example, understanding about prime numbers is very important to being successful in weaving and particularly in the ancient context. And I talk about some of the possible relations between early Greek mathematics and the type of weaving that they did, and particularly their interest in prime numbers and how do you find remainders and that sort of thing wasn't expressed as a practical thing. But where did it come from? We think about geometry probably came from land surveying. Some of this early number theory may have come from weaving, which was something that was pervasive in Greek society, was a central element of Greek culture. And then knitting has this very powerful ability to create three-dimensional structures. And there's a topologist who has written a paper that has a title like any topological structure can be knitted. And they've knitted some examples that I have pictures of in the book. And also the decoration of cloth, you have to think in terms of pixels. So it's not really drawing, it's not strokes that connect. Yeah. If you want to weave a pattern, you may start with an idea of a picture Mm -hmm. that you want to make, but in order to make it, it's just like pixels. And in fact, people who do it today, they graph it on graph paper or they use a computer program that creates those kind of little dots mm-hmm. because it is that type of structure. I think most technologists today have heard the story of Jacquard and his punch cards and how he, he invented these punch cards. Maybe. I don't know. Tell us the story. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. There's the actual story and the shorthand story. So the shorthand story is, oh, Jacquard used punch cards to control the loom. And this was the first computer, Hmm. essentially. That's the way it's told. It's a little more complicated than that. First of all, as you may have gotten the feeling from what I've already been saying, people had been remembering, recording, and actually storing what we would call today digital patterns. That is ones and zero kind of patterns for millennia. They had just done it in different ways. But what Jacquard did, there were these very complicated, very expensive, labor-intensive looms called draw looms that were very popular in 17th and 18th century France, where they were very much trying to create the illusion of it not being digital or analog nature, if you will. If you're an animator today and you're doing digital animation for video games or something and you're trying to make it more and more realistic. So they were trying to do the same thing in cloth. But if you want to make flowers or you want to make birds, getting them to be realistic in what is essentially a grid is a real challenge. And there were these looms that were called draw looms, which I will not go into how they work. It's in the book, but it's 
complicated and takes too long to explain orally. And also some diagrams are helpful. But the basic idea was they could lift one warp thread at a time. Mm -hmm. And you could do sort of one pixel, if you will. You could select any pixel. Well, as you can imagine, this was very time consuming doing that. Well, what Jacquard did was he figured out a way that you could automate that process. First, you had to make the pattern, but you would use these punched cards. And then there was a device that would connect to the loom. And if there was a hole, it would do one thing. And if there wasn't a hole, it would do the other thing. And so you have this sort of digital medium. And then that becomes used not only to automate this very complicated patterns, but also to basically automate all looms. Hmm. And it was also copied in other industries. It was a breakthrough way of mechanically controlling pattern making. And it was easy to make copies. Now you could just, if you wanted yeah. that flower, you could just make another one. So you could have these patterns on file, so to speak. Right. right. And so this was a big leap forward there. And then suddenly everybody is getting pictures made, you know, pictures like portraits made, or mm. when soldiers would go off to war, they would get a little portrait woven to give their mother, that sort of thing. That's cool. Yeah. And, and another thing that was fascinating about this is fast forwarding to the 20th century, where you talk about how in the Apollo program, so change of gears, but it still has to do with cloth. Yeah. In the Apollo program, once they had squashed all their software bugs and they have decided on a code freeze, they would go and actually physically weave the memory into hardware. So before the development of computer chips, I'm going to talk about two different types of memory. What you're describing is what we might call read-only memory. So they made a program that nobody was going to change. And they had, as you said, they had frozen it, it was debugged, it was perfect. And then they would weave it into physical wires where I may get it backwards, but if one went over, that was a one. If it went under, that was a zero. And they would create these physical embodiments of what had been written on punch cards in yeah. those days. It's called rope memory. Rope, and it was called rope memory. Yeah. Uh, there was also in that period, up to the 1970s, another kind of computer memory, which is like random access memory, which was called core memory. And this really looks like weaving when you see it. It's copper wires, and there's you know a warp and a weft, and every intersection where they cross, there's a little donut, a little ferrite core, they're called, that's looping over the intersection. Mm -hmm. And by sending a current to specific wires, one warp and one weft, if you will, you can flip the cores, the, the magnetic charge to them. And this was a way of representing the ones and zeros. Mm -hmm. And it really is just like cloth. And the people who did it weren't modeling it on cloth, but cloth is so digital that they ended up recreating weaving. Yeah. And now the Vanguard is 3D knitting. Yes. Yes. What's going on with that? 3D knitting has been around for several decades, but it's starting to really take off. Typically, like I'm wearing a t-shirt, you're wearing a t-shirt. Our t-shirts are made out of knitted material, not woven material. Most of the way that's produced is it's actually made in, in giant tubes that are then cut like any other fabric and you cut out the sleeves and you cut it, you oh, I see. piece it together. Right. That's 
the traditional way of making most things other than, say, socks. But over the past several decades, companies have developed ways of knitting a whole shirt or a whole sweater in one piece, one continuous process. So there are no seams. It's not sewn together. It's all one piece. It's been more expensive. It's been slower. And that's still true. But both the software representation that feeds it and the machines themselves have gotten better and better. And it's starting to really take off. And the idea is that if it's being used to make shoes, for example, Mm -hmm. you can, with software, drive a three-dimensional knitting machine to make different types of knits for the arch, for the back of the shoe, for the part where the shoelaces go, can make a little hole and it can make it reinforced, all of that, so that you can make an entire shoe except for the rubber sole. And then it's just putting it together. And what this allows companies to do is rather than putting their inventory in finished goods or even in cloth, they can keep their inventory in yarn. And when they have feedback from the market, they can produce what's needed to be produced. And so there's less waste, it's less expensive on the inventory side, and that can justify more expensive on the production of the cloth side. And you can also potentially get customization, personalization. Right, right. Is knitting just better than weaving? I know that you're a weaver, so that's a loaded question. I, I did learn to weave and I don't knit because I have arthritis and it hurts. They're not better or worse. They're good in different ways. Knitting is more flexible. It stretches more easily in different directions, even without adding spandex or something to it. Mm -hmm. And as we've moved toward less tailored, more comfort-oriented attire, knitting has become dominant because of that. And then there are these technological reasons because you can't, well, you can, but 3D weaving is still something that's done in labs, not in factories. Interesting. I know some people that work for a company in Oakland called Bilio, and they have some of these advanced 3D knitting machines. And it was interesting learning from them because in industrial design and product design, you don't want to show any screws or connection points and things like that. You want the design to be completely clean. And the way that they think, it's like seams are unseemly. Like the future is clothes, bags, everything, no seams, everything knit as one single one piece. continuous thing, yes. Yeah. And it's this idea of perfection, as you would only touch on this in the book, but there's really interesting frontiers in 3D knitting being where 3D printing was 15 years ago. And there are two big companies that have proprietary systems that require you really to understand how knitting works in order to use them. But a lot of designers are designing on CAD systems that then somebody has to translate. And so the question is, there's some way that we can get that interface to be easier. Right. And especially because there are a lot of software advances that originally started in the animation industry where they're trying to just simulate cloth on the character to look real to us. But over time, they've moved into reality and companies are starting to scan and record the characteristics of individual yarns and being able to build up algorithmically from the yarn up a simulation of what the final garment would be. And if you can get that to work down the road, that could save a tremendous amount of time, waste, environmental impact, all of these things, money. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, but there are challenges, as is often the case, between established companies that have heavily invested in machines that do the knitting and they would still have that market, but they keep their customers partly because there's a lock-in quality to once you've learned their interface, you I see. stay with them and not switch to their competitor. Right. And then, so the next chapter is about dye. And at first when I started this chapter after Apollo to 3D knitting, I was like, okay, dye, you know, can't be that important. It actually is very interesting because as weaving gave rise to concepts of computation, dye seemed to kickstart chemistry Chemistry. as a pursuit. It's a very direct link. The computation thing, you have to dance around and look a little bit. Whereas with chemistry, it's just, it's simple. The chemical industry, as we know it, started with dye. I mean, the first product was dye. But I start earlier, before the synthetic dyes in the 19th century. I go back to ancient times and very early dyes. Dyeing was one of the ways that human beings explored the chemical world. They didn't know that's what they were doing necessarily, but it was through trial and error. What do you have to do in terms of temperature, in terms of water? And remember, you don't necessarily have thermometers. They're a relatively late invention, but from the way that it sounds, from the way it smells, all these sensory things, how do you do experiments to figure out how to achieve certain effects? And how far can you go with that type of approach? And then what happens when you start to develop modern chemical science? There's an interesting moment in the late 17th century where Europeans come in contact with the amazing achievements of Indian dyers, which were also done by trial and error. But Indian cotton prints come into Europe and people are just amazed because The colors are really vivid and they're also color fast. They don't fade in the wash and they use prints, whereas Europeans had used embroidery or these very complicated weaving patterns or just plaids and checks and things Mm. like that woven and they hadn't developed prints. So this is a huge commercial phenomenon, but it also came right, right around the time people were starting to feel their way towards something that resembles modern chemistry. And so the French government in particular put a lot of money into dye research, essentially. And this was a way that people who were scientifically interested in chemistry could advance their scientific interests. So that was in France, but throughout Europe, people who wanted to be kind of on the cutting edge of chemical research would go to work in dye houses. And then once you start to get actual chemical theory where you start to realize, oh, there are elements and they interact in certain ways, then that starts to get applied to dyes. And then you come into the 19th century where people are struggling to understand organic chemistry, where you have the same elements, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, essentially, and a little nitrogen and some other things occasionally. But that's where people develop what are called aniline dyes, that is synthetic dyes, which were made from an industrial waste product called coal tar. Hmm. Textiles are a huge industry. Dyes are a huge way to make money. And then that jumpstarts the chemical industry because you need not only the final outputs, but you need the inputs, the chemicals that are going to then be used to make dyes. And so 
it builds from there and eventually you get aspirin, you get glues and you get photographic chemicals and you get eventually in the 1930s, Mm -hmm. you get synthetic fibers as well. Throughout the book, you talk about impact on world history in surprising ways. And this was one of the most surprising ones, which is that Germany's competency in chemistry, which was born of an interest in dye, actually led it down the path that it went in the 20th century. It didn't have colonies, right? But it had a really robust chemical industry and a great source of wealth and that this fueled their economy at a critical time. Yeah. So... Actually, Germany was first really advanced in chemical science, and then it got applied to dyes. Okay, it, it's complicated. It's it's actually very complicated. But but yes, essentially, Germany its takeoff was by the chemical industry, which starts with dyes. And there are a lot of dyes that come out of Germany. So yes, when I mentioned aspirin, that was a, a German product, and. It also led to a lot of weapons and, of course, in the First World War, chemical weapons. Mm -hmm. But it was this new source of extreme national wealth and power. And Germany didn't have colonies. And then the other thing that was going on at the same time is some of the value of colonies was diminished because you didn't need indigo from India or sapan wood to make red dye from Indonesia. Mm. That's a great segue to talk about economics because the next two chapters are about traders and consumers. And again, something I didn't know was that cloth throughout history has been commonly used as a currency. Cloth is durable, portable, divisible. It has a utility value, so you can take your money and turn it into something useful to yourself. Tell us the story about cloth as money. Yeah, so I talk about three different places on three different continents and three completely unconnected cultures, which are Iceland, Western China and Western Africa. And that's an interesting case because West African cloth is traditionally made as what is called strip cloth. That is, weavers make long strips, say, or standard length strips, say six or eight feet, that are four to six inches wide. And then they sew those together into a larger textile that is the garment. Mm -hmm. Well, when they were using it for currency, they would make strip cloth, but then they wouldn't sew it. It wouldn't be patterned or anything. It would just be plain and it wouldn't be sewn into a garment. It would be rolled up. So if you think of rolling up a fairly tough piece of cloth that's say four inches wide, you get this roll and then they could stack the rolls. There were various ways to carry them. And they would be standard denominations of value. So throughout history, cloth has been bartered. Mm -hmm. This is not barter. This is actual currency that has the characteristics of money. You can see, as you mentioned, some of the desirable characteristics of money. One is because this is in a pre-industrial context, it's a limited quantity. It takes a long time to make cloth. Mm -hmm. So you have a control on the money supply. It comes in standard denominations. It's portable. It's durable. There's enough information that we can see how as cloth moved from places where cloth itself was plentiful and currency was valuable 
to places where maybe there was more currency and less cloth, it would go, in, as you say, into the utility value. It would just be made into actual cloth and then taken out of the money supply and into the cloth supply. In Africa and Iceland, this developed in a sort of customary slash common law way. In China, this is the case in all things Chinese, the government was heavily involved in decreeing that cloth was currency and that you could pay your taxes with it and that it was legal tender. You had to take it, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting contrast as well. And then so finally, at the end, you have a chapter on innovators and you devote that to cutting edge textile development. Okay, so first of all, the big theme that I found really interesting is unlike in the past where, say, people wanted dyes, so they invested in chemistry or they studied chemistry. This is going the other way. Hmm. Here you're having scientists who start out studying things that are not related necessarily at all to textiles. They may be studying nanotechnology, they may be studying bioengineering, they may be studying optics, and they realize that cloth is everywhere and textiles are a big leverage tool. And gee, if I apply my work to textiles, I can make a big difference in the world. There are lots of caveats. I have to be honest. Some things never make it outside the lab and some things don't make it into big markets, although they may make it into very specialized markets like first responders. There's a lot of work on textiles for various and sundry extreme conditions. Like athletes. Well, and athletes and outdoor apparel. It's the cutting edge of applied research, if you will. So that stuff actually does tend to make it to the marketplace and then eventually trickle down to people who aren't making big demands of their clothes. There have been lots of incremental improvements that we just completely take for granted. And another thing is there were technological advances in what's called finishes that happened around the same time that business casual became a thing. Mm. And so all of those khakis that men bought to wear to work were much easier to take care of because they didn't wrinkle as much and you didn't necessarily need to iron them, that sort of thing. Or even the knits. Knits are great. They're comfortable. They stretch in different directions. But one of the problem with knits traditionally was they would stretch out of shape. Mm -hmm. And that can still happen now. But there are various things about the way that the yarn is made and finished that make that less likely to happen. Mm. And so it's much easier to take care of and it lasts longer. Another thing is what are called microfibers. Several years ago, I did a story about stuffed Easter bunnies for Bloomberg because I wanted to answer the question, how come kids' plush toys are so much softer now and have been for several decades than they were when I was a kid in the 60s? And the reason is mostly polyester microfibers, very, very fine filaments, thread, if you will. And it makes it much softer. And of course, now then we're worried about, oh no, they break off in the wash and then they go into the water. So now you know, one improvement leads to another improvement. You mentioned the future and its enemies. Form follows failure. Every time you invent something, you see what's wrong with it and you have the next thing you have to invent. So now people are looking at various ways to filter those out. And sustainability is really a core concern for textile consumers yeah. today. Well, what I would say is sustainability is a core concern for people who are doing research into ways to improve textiles. Okay. 
and it is slowly becoming something that actually motivates consumers. Oh, really? Well, it's talked about a lot, but then the question is how do people actually behave when they go into the marketplace? Right. It does seem that in the last couple of years, it has become much more of a deciding factor. But certainly a lot of the people who are researching how to improve textiles, they're defining improvement in the context of the environmental impact, whether that is using less water and having less outflows in terms of dyeing, or whether it's one of the things that I loved hearing about were experiments and ways to make cooling fibers so that you would use less energy for air conditioning. If we ever get there, that would Mm. be a huge savings. Yeah. Textiles are starting to take on new functions that they never have before. So we talked about improving baseline functionality right? and then making that more sustainable, but powering gadgets through your clothes or even having computation take place in your clothes. One of the people you interviewed, they say the, the vision is that technology disappears, cloth can communicate, measure, record, and respond. The word wearables doesn't even apply because wearables is a word that refers to things you don't wear. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the things you wear that we call clothes. Right. Yeah. And that's why the quintessential wearable is actually a watch because it's an accessory. The idea is, okay, we have these things that we know about in the world of IT, mm-hmm. fiber optics. We're used to the idea of fibers and they're getting smaller and smaller and computation, whether it's sensors or lights or all the things you can do with chips are getting smaller and smaller. And If you can embed those in fibers and then put those fibers into garments, not substituting for all of the normal thread, but in addition to it, Mm -hmm. then instead of having some special thing, you could just have that functionality in the garment. They're not there yet. The issue of flexibility, stretch, all of those qualities is a big one. And then you alluded to the issue of power. A lot of the things that have been done successfully with things like sensors or lights, or you know, you can have a pair of pants that you could wear when you're out jogging at night. And then if a car comes towards you, it senses the car and it has LEDs on it that light up. Mm-hmm. That's something that they've made prototypes. This is a center at MIT. Mm. I'm sure other people have done similar things as well, because there's a lot of work in this area, but you have to have a battery. So how can you do that? And then the question is down the road, could you somehow use embedding things in textiles as a way to have your everyday activities generate the relatively small amounts of power needed to power these various sensors or lights or whatever that might be. Uh So there's definitely some possibilities out there. And it goes back to this idea that textiles are everywhere. They are one of our essential technologies. They completely surround us and they are a major leverage point anytime you want to change the world. Wow. That's a great closing, actually. Is there (laughs) anything else you want to say that we didn't talk about yet? Buy the book. <laughs> you kind of, the, the, my my fear is people will think that this is everything in the book because we went through all the chapters, but it's definitely not. It's definitely not. And it's really visual too, which I really appreciated because I'm a visual person and it's laid out in a very accessible way. It doesn't feel like you're reading a historical tome or anything like that. It's, it's telling stories that are very human and relatable. So I, I really enjoyed it and I really appreciate getting the opportunity to talk to you today. So where can we find you online? You mentioned YouTube. 
Yeah, so the easiest way to find me is to go to my website, vpostrel.com, because there you will see the links to YouTube and Twitter and Instagram, all of these other places. But yes, I have a YouTube channel where I'm posting videos that are inspired by the book. Some of them overlap with the book. Some of them are new material. All of them have some kinds of new material in them. And they're short, you know, six to 10 minutes long. But there's a way of giving people an accessible introduction to some of the fun stories that are in the book. All right. Well, thanks so much. And I hope to talk to you again soon. You too. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.davebirnbaum.com. Beats by Ilya MC. Copyright 2020.